0: Hello, and welcome to the Making Peace Visible podcast, brought to you by the War Stories Peace Stories Project. Thanks for joining me today. This is your host, Jamil Simon in Boston. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Mary Fitzstuff, a peacebuilder and a friend, and the author of a fascinating new book, Our Brains at War, a Neuroscience of Conflict and Peacebuilding. Mary's book is deeply relevant to what's happening right now in America. Our Brains at War explains a lot about the brain chemistry that's driving the madness and violence we're seeing almost every day in the U.S. Mary has had a remarkable career. She and her husband, Niall, are from Northern Ireland, and they've spent a lifetime working on the peace process there.
1: I met and married a man from Northern Ireland, and I therefore found myself in the midst of a war. Um, particularly in a place that was called the Killing Zone. Um, It was the centre of Northern Ireland, around County Tyrone, etc. And it was called that because it had the second highest murder rate in Northern Ireland. And I had two children, young, scampering about my feet, hardly able to talk. And I remember opening the door one day uh, to see in front of me a group of British soldiers. And I wondered what they were looking for. And I remembered then about an hour previously I had been looking out my backfield and I had noticed what I presumed were a group of IRA soldiers practicing. And I thought to myself, here am I in the midst of a zone where there are young people in the British Army who joined up, probably because they couldn't get any other employment, about to fight and kill a group of young Irish men, nationalists all, who couldn't get employment because they themselves were of the wrong persuasion in Northern Ireland, which had tended to have most of the resources for Protestants and not for Catholics. And the thought of these two young groups of soldiers fighting the other, and I myself had two young children at that time, both of whom were boys. And I just thought there has to be, there has to be a different way. And the problem was there was so many innocent people who were getting killed, bomb, bombs were going off in pubs and fish shops, et cetera. So the government was interested in seeing what else could be done besides a security approach. Subsequently, I was involved in mediation at a community level and at a relationship level, working with families, etc. And it struck me it might be a good thing to see if we could use this relatively new tool to see what we could do for the conflict in Northern Ireland. I have to tell you, it was so new that when I first began to set up courses in the local university in mediation, half the people who came thought it was meditation, not mediation, because it was a word they didn't understand. But having started these courses uh, with a few friends, we set up an organization which became known as Mediation Network. And it was set up specifically to deal with the community and political um, mediation processes that were most needed because the war was going on and on and on. We had not had something like over a decade of it. And myself and a colleague, Hugh Fraser, put together a paper saying that one of the real problems was while we had got some equality work underway, we had no work that was dealing specifically with relationship.
0: While Mary had begun the process of promoting and implementing a mediation process between the Protestants and the Catholics, there were a lot of challenges in trying to build relationships, mainly because the two sides lived their lives completely separate.
1: And the problem was we were living in a Northern Ireland where everybody lived in their own little uh, neighborhoods. Uh, It was almost impossible to find places to meet, to cross that divide. All the transport was radio, so it came in for Catholic, from Catholic or Protestant areas. But there was very few places where people could actually meet and meet in a way that they could begin to drop their defenses and begin to talk about what could happen in Northern Ireland to take us out of the war that we were in. So subsequent to that, um, an organization was set up and with funding from the European Union and the government. It was an independent organization set up specifically to look at relationships. And it was a huge process ahead of us because I think we realized very quickly that it wasn't just a few people who needed to be involved, but pretty well every sector. The public sector was divided. We had firemen going into either Catholic or Protestant areas. We had police forces who were something like over 90 percent Protestant. Uh, Naturally, they were not accepted by many in the Catholic areas. We had um, a community sector that was also incredibly divided, hardly ever met. We had churches that made little uh, use of, of opportunities to meet with each other, etc. It was a hugely divided society. We had even our teaching educate um, establishments where our teachers learned. They were also divided. So we basically sat down and drew a map in terms of what do we do in terms of making these connections, in terms of breaking down barriers. How can we get everybody involved? Because our sense was, that if we just got a few people involved, such as the paramilitaries, such as the security forces, such as the politicians, it would be impossible for the the knitting together that needs to happen in a society to make peace sustainable.
0: With their understanding of mediation techniques, coupled with their deep understanding of Irish culture, Mary and her colleagues knew the obstacles they would have to overcome to lay the groundwork for the peace process.
1: Uh, We began in 1990, Particularly, we were conscious that we needed to get things going very quickly. And it was amazing how quickly things did begin to to follow. If you look at the reports of what was happening under the Community Relations Council, as it was called, it was dozens, then hundreds of processes taking place. And particularly important, I think, were the processes that involved the politicians. I worry a lot about processes that just focus on the NGOs, because in the end of the day, the agreements are going to be made by the politicians from all sides. I was also very aware that the paramilitaries needed to be involved uh, from both sides, because by now they had had decades of war, and it was going to be very difficult to wean them off of war and into a new process of peace. So, in a way, it was a non-stop process from that day I opened my door to find the British Army people in there. And very conscious also of the Catholic IRA who were um, felt that they had been completely, and right, rightly so, because Catholics had been left out in many of the political processes, in many of the resources. They were second always in terms of housing, in terms of businesses, etc. It was quite a roller coaster in a f- few years. It was just tremendous when the ceasefires came. And we came and went then for about another four years, but the work went on and on many of the processes that we did had to happen in secret because it was too dangerous for the people concerned. Um, But there were hundreds of people willing to uh, take on board uh, new ways of forming dialogues and Mm -hmm. new ways of trying to help us look towards the future. One of the best moments I remember was I was coming somewhere from a taxi from the airport. And the taxi, I noted, was being driven by an ex-Protestant paramilitary and he had in front of him a book that I'd written uh, with a hundred different ways to have difficult dialogues. And I noticed it on his um, on, on his armrest. And he said, yeah, he said, um, this is the Bible. We use this for the Bible. And it turned out that he had actually set up with somebody from the nationalist uh, uh, community um, a dialogue process because the two of them acted, as it were, as joint mediators for the sort of talking that needed to happen. So it was um, tough. Well, many of many death threats were, were, were sort of came our way, as it were, but mm-hmm. in the end, um, it did add up. And I think that it added up to a much healthier process than it would have been if we hadn't involved so many people in the making of the peace agreement. But the second thing is we found that um, the work, and, and it echoes what the, the researcher found, we had to find ways of people keeping up their conversations because one-off conversations didn't get very far. Um, So let me give you an example, if we had youth groups who met, and as youth groups often do, they're idealistic, they meet new people, they open themselves to them, uh, they make new friends, and then they go back to their communities. And what happens a few weeks later is there's a march about something or other or there's a bomb goes off and people just go back into their little shelters as it were because it's very hard for you to stand out from your own community when they're responding to something that's pretty dreadful. So uh, creating ways in which they could actually continue Um, their conversations was actually very, very important. And this meant basically taking an awful lot of organizations and making sure that they could take on board, that they did in fact contain people from different communities. So this meant that, in fact, the various public sectors, for instance, we had a lot of meetings with them because we discovered that they were basically in, in different camps. You would find while they might employ people from different communities, they very rarely connected with each other. But that is is a fascinating research. Uh, You do have to make sure what we found was we had to make sure those conversations could continue and develop enough strength to resist the bombs that would go off or the atrocities that might happen. because. You find, and this is particularly true in Israel, that gradually the NGOs were whittled away by the number of tragic incidents within or between their communities. And in a way, they all just gave up just connecting. So enabling people to connect together in a way that enabled them to get used to each other. If you look at my book, the evidence shows that when people actually have a chance to actually get to know each other over weeks and years Mm -hmm. then in fact the barriers begin to break down and they find that they don't react in the same way that they do to people whom they know to be different whom they've just met who they might Mm -hmm. be slightly fearful of that gradually those defenses do ease and find that if the fear gradually recedes so that in fact what you see are the people and not the problems
0: following mary's work on peace negotiations in northern ireland she was invited by the UN to work on conflicts in Israel, the Balkans, South Africa, and other countries. With her knowledge and experience working on global conflicts, she founded and led a world-renowned graduate peacebuilding program at Brandeis University.
1: I'm one of these people who only stays roughly about seven years in a job, so in fact... <laughs> When I began to see the peace process was really going to be that the Good Friday Agreement was, was, it was there and it was going to happen. I actually did run another organization, which was a United Nations organization, looking specifically at research. So that gave me more time uh, mm. to reflect. And particularly what I was reflecting on, what I wanted to reflect on was change. How did change come about? And the reason that was so important to me was that I actually had done my doctorate before, in fact, I'd taken up the job with the CRC, And for it, I interviewed um, many paramilitaries who had been used to using the bomb and the bullet, but who had changed their mind and were now looking at uh, dialogue processes. And I was really interested in what had made them change their mind. There was one I remember, particularly one Protestant paramilitary, and people didn't know that he was one. I mean, these things were sort of hush hush. He was invited by a peace group to come and talk to them. And they were so grateful to his for his perspective that they kept inviting him back again. And eventually he got more of what he needed through belonging to this group than belonging to the paramilitary group. And one of the things that I discovered as part of the process of my PhD, that people had joined up, some of them joined up because it was mother's milk stuff. They'd been brought up as Republicans, people like Jerry Adams or Martin McGuinness, who were two of the key people in the IRA. Or they had joined up because something had happened that had made them angry. You know, their aunt, their mothers had been knocked about by a soldier or they would in in the middle of the night or one of their uh, cousins had been killed by the IRA. So there was some incident that turned mm-hmm. them right. into taking up violence. But the third one, and this was true in some ways in, in the Protestant communities, but it is true and it's true of most groups of um, uh, paramilitaries that I have met since, that often it was the belonging the, almost the, to the heroic side of life, mm. having, having a goal, having a meaning to their lives, particularly if you were people who didn't have much in terms of um, employment, etc.
0: In Mary's new book, Our Brains at War, she takes us on a fascinating tour of the changes taking place in our brains in the face of conflict using insights gained from contemporary brain research. For example, how can the brains of generally nonviolent people get hijacked into committing violent acts?
1: It does not make sense to focus on the theology of different people, because we know there are many people who went to, for instance, who joined ISIL from the West, who had Islam for dummies in their rucksacks. They knew nothing about it, but they had been (laughs) encouraged to actually go and join this group that they saw as doing heroic things. And it almost didn't matter that they didn't know very much about it. And in fact, I mean, that sense, one of the most interesting things that struck me was the number of paramilitaries who had been out on what they called nights of action, which was basically bombing, killing, rather shamefacedly confessed to me that they had never felt more alive than when they were carrying out a lot of these deeds. They were shocked to find what they had done. I mean, one of the the things I often ask classes, hands up anyone who's ever been in a riot, because most of the classes, Miranda's, were from pretty awful Tough conflict ridden places. Getting people to talk about why they did what they did when they were part of a riot is fascinating because it's almost for some of them as if they have been taken over. Part of what happens, people, when they join a fundamentalist group, it takes care of so much. You have an ideology, you have a framework, companionship, you have meaning. It really gives you a different way of being in life. And for many who just have not got much to go on in terms of their lives. It's very, very seductive. It could almost be any anything. I mean, we discover not only can people make enemies out of almost any group, but they can always create almost a passion about particular groups. And one of the dangers, of course, of the um, internet is the fact that people can belong in a different way and feel better about belonging to a group in a different way. And that actually can change, of course, socially can change them into situations of, of where they are prepared to ad- endorse and support violence.
0: Mary focused a whole chapter on the effects of social media on the human brain and how it can fuel hatred, prejudice and violence. The more we've learned about how Facebook uses algorithms, the more obvious it is that their algorithms are designed to intensify disputes because conflict earns more money.
1: I I think that chapter was the most frightening chapter for me to write because if you just look in our field, how many processes are being destroyed so easily right around the world through social media it has become a phenomenon that we cannot go without addressing and um, i was really i was interested because i did notice uh, there was something in my my um, chapter where i talked about algorithms which um, prioritize um, the negativities But i hadn't understood until i began to pay more attention to what's coming out from the um, facebook Now, I had understood Facebook did some months ago that, you know, there's a like dislike process, which is really problematic because that basically says you're with one group or another group. It's binary. And Facebook have actually stopped using that in many places. But when I was reading the papers just the the last few days, I think I hadn't understood that they actually uh, deliberately prioritized uh, issues that an angry uh, attachment to them in terms of an emoji. And that this, of course, these were, of course, being six times, ten times as much circulated as those where people talked about liked or loved or cared. And I suppose what had not come home to me was it, it was actually that they were very deliberately doing this. I had assumed that there was some way in which because their emotions involved that it did actually traverse through the, the universe of the Web. But I now understand that, in fact, because uh, Facebook was actually losing revenue. They actually decided to emphasize uh, emoji characteristics and what was behind them. I'm still in shock from understanding that that not only happened, but it was deliberate. You know, we started out with great hopes. I mean, certainly my hope and your hope and all our colleagues hope was when, you know, the social media started, that it would be a wonderful tool for democratization, for sharing knowledge. And, you know, it it truly has been. Um, But the problem has been that, you know, there's two sides to our nature. And the better angels of our human nature really did take this opportunity. And I think tremendous connections were made in terms of idealism. And even still, I mean, you see the look looking at COP26 in Glasgow and you can see the connections that are made about with the environmentalists, et cetera, has enabled them to bring people together. The other really the, the, the problem is the silos and also the the addictive nature of right. um, social media. I mean, a lot of stuff in terms of our hormones, etc. It really is almost like playing in, in, in sort of a card game or playing on, on the casinos in Las Vegas. You can actually get some of the same sorts of um, feelings about it. For instance, I mean, if I say to you, how often do you look at your phone? Infinitely more than you would look at it in the past when you would mm-hmm. wait for the line to work. And if you notice any meeting, people are always half looking at their phone plus because they you get that 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 um, thrill your body raises mm-hmm. to right. something coming in and it's um and it goes on and on there's pretty well no restaurant i mean you can see it any time of the day or night you can go in to see what's happening you can in- go in to see what people have said what have they said in response to you it's a nature of that and you find if you ask people and there's a, a funny thing i was talking to my young son he says here in london people are so aware of how addicted they are to their phones that when they meet in a pub, now that they're able to meet in a pub with the lockdown easing up with their telephone into the center of the table. Mm -hmm. And the first person who lifts that telephone has to pay for the round of drinks.
0: (laughs) That's great. That's great. No, I mean, it's so, and it begins at an early age now. I mean, I remember being with my granddaughter and she asked me to take a picture of her and I did, and she posted it. And, on our way as I was taking him back home, she said, grandpa, I got 15 likes already. And this <laughs> was like 15 yeah. minutes, you know, talking about the the beginning of addiction. There it is.
1: It's, it's wired up in the same way, as I say, as gambling addictions are, it's, it's, a, it's We can can all see, it's something we can all see in ourselves. It's something that, um, you know, I know that there are, for instance, the Alliance for Peacekeeping, uh, for Peacebuilding is actually, has got a committee looking at this. Many other groups have got committees now that are raising their heads to see what exactly is the necessity because, as I say, a lot of our peace process are just being destroyed overnight. Um, one particular peace process, I remember, there was just about to, to sign an agreement and somebody put out a rumor about one of the leaders. It wasn't true, but it completely threw the whole peace process into, into array. Unfortunately, our, our nature is we are always looking for things in some ways to, you know to, to entice us, to excite us. And uh, many of us now involve ourselves in uh, meditation so that we actually can find some level of calm in our days.
0: Provocation doesn't just come from the opponents in a conflict. Provocation can come from the same people who are responsible for delivering information to the public, like TV, radio, and newspapers, and now social media, most of whom have a stake in presenting information in one way or
1: another. In Northern Ireland, you basically had Don't be surprised when I tell you, you had Catholic newspapers and Protestant newspapers. And they always spoke from their own particular viewpoints. So you would have an emphasis in the Catholic papers on what the soldiers and policemen had done that was wrong. And you would have an emphasis in the Protestant papers on what the um, provisional IRA and what the nationalists had done wrong. It was as clear as that. Gradually, we began to making sure that people understood that everybody had to be in on the the game. Everybody had Mm -hmm. to be in on creating the sort of society that we wanted. For instance, we started to have articles and the newspapers agreed that they would have one or two articles on the um, Catholic point of view in the Protestant paper, and one mm-hmm. or two Catholic in, in Catholics on the, uh, the other, Protestants in the Catholic paper. People began to realize that there was something in terms of beginning to look at the other side. And they gradually began to uh, take people in, as it were, into um, their confidence, Mm -hmm. And people began to articulate a few points that wouldn't be seen by other communities. Literally, most people every day took out their paper and their paper was Protestant or Catholic. So that Mm -hmm. sort of beginning to initiate those kinds which the uh, the newspapers began to do, the the sort of the the major newspapers began to do, um, actually was was really, really helpful. I have to say, I mean, we did, there were journalists. For instance, I can remember being at a dinner with some journalists and I had had actually rather too much to drink. I'd had three glasses of Mm. wine instead of my usual one and a half. And I remember thinking at that stage, I knew there was talk, a serious talk going on between the British government and the IRA. And I knew that none of these journalists knew it. I mean, it was one of the things we had kept utterly, utterly beyond the pale. And I remember saying to the journalists, but what if you didn't know that there were talks going on that you didn't know about and you suddenly discovered, what would you do with that? They all said, we would write about it. And I knew that if that had happened, the whole process would be destroyed. Right. People need space and time to actually. So in a sense, there is the public bit of journalism and that is their job. I don't Mm -hmm. think there was a there is a big debate in in our communities, as you know, in the peace building community about Mm -hmm. journalists do their job and they try to do it as well as they can. And then there are some who decide that they go in for peace journalism, which is basically deliberately trying to do things that will enable people to, to, to understand each other better. And it right. can be very difficult to tell journalists, and rightly so, what they should write, because in a sense, their impetus should be to write the truth as they see it. However, I can remember um, I was working with NPO, or they asked me to uh, work with a group of Palestinians and Israelis who had come to Boston. Mm-hmm. and I can remember I, was, I had rung them up and I was to be down at 12, and I, I said to myself, I bet there will be a fight before, there'll be fighting before I get there, and there was, and it um, was about uh, the different way in which the, 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 the Israelis were angry because the Palestinians wouldn't sit down for a common photograph with them, that they could, the, the Israelis wanted to betray their liberalism, but for the um, Palestinians, they felt that this would be taken by their community as consorting with the enemy, what we were trying to do in that particular one was trying to say, what if you wrote about every death the same way? Not Mm -hmm. saying whether it was an Israeli victim or a Palestinian victim. What if you just wrote about victims in the same way and gave the same um, credibility and and same background and, and same sorrow to each? And this was something that gradually the papers in Northern Ireland volunteered to do. They began not to talk about the victims as Protestant or Catholic, because they felt that doing that was actually going to up the ante in terms of violence and hatred.
0: Yeah. So
1: they did record the deaths, but they were careful not to record what community they came from. Now often mm-hmm. you could tell because it was in a certain community, you would have an notion. but they began to work in ways that was that were that really were very responsible. And now you would have uh, particularly the main Protestant newspaper that when I began my work um, 20 years ago, it would have been read, read only by Protestants. It's now pretty well read right, right across the board. The Belfast Telegraph. It's a it's a community paper now. Now there still are a few local papers that do have perspectives that would certainly uh, shadow those of their communities, but they are mm-hmm. much more open to um, right across the board um, journalism. It is hard because journalists are rightly suspect of what they call peace journalism um, mm-hmm. because they feel that's. Uh, if they were to do peace journalism, they would be trying to push a boundary that they wouldn't see as, as true to the way they see things or as the way they see them on the ground. So it can be quite difficult to, uh, for them to take on board perspectives. And therefore, it's often much better for opinion makers to make on, take on such perspectives rather than just journalists. In the last decade, we have had very good examples of uh, radio journalists who saw themselves... not as reporting one side or the other, but as asking questions. And I think the way journalists can ask questions can contribute enormously to what's happening in a peace process. If they can show that their questions are genuinely challenging to both sides, if they can show that they themselves accept their ignorance. Very often, being ignorant is quite a good place from which to do journalism. Can you tell me why? It's a good
0: place like to start, right?
1: It is often a good place start, and in fact, I often when I go into a country, I sometimes think, you know, you're often much better, um, no, well, at least pretending that you don't know as much as you actually do. But I have, we, have had, and we have had quite a good of our um, BBC and UTV journalists who have turned themselves into really good, um, almost mediators, because you mm-hmm. know, a mediator is, is sort of someone who knows and recognizes there are different sides, and who genuinely uh, the, the real trick, of course, is and I know this from having worked in journalism in the BBC myself. You know, you're doing OK when the complaints are equal from both sides, barring that when you get people actually saying can't, they can't tell whether a journalist is a Protestant or a Catholic because they can't tell from the questions. And that's actually something that I think wished for, as it were. So I think journalism, live journalism can happen in such a way that people understand that you really will be open to both sides, sort of move towards one side. You won't forget to come back and ask the other side as it were, or the variety of sides. I mean, that's the other thing is bringing in varieties of sides because we often see conflict as being one against the other. I think task of journalists is often to um, ask questions and good questions and questions for all the different sides. So in a way that people can hear and listen.
0: In Mary's book, she explores the intersection between the science of neuroimaging and mediation. While it may sound like something from a Stanley Kubrick film, neuroimaging tools like MRIs give us powerful ways to actually see, in real time, how the brain changes in the face of conflict.
1: And it's interesting because it can predict how you behave unless you recognize that there's something extra that needs to happen. So for instance, and, um, you know, I'm talking as as, as a woman and I mm-hmm. look across the street and I see a gang of guys and it's late at night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, frankly, every woman's instinct is a little bit, oh, my goodness, you know, is that going to be a problem? Am I going to? And then you sort of say, I mean, I worked in a, in a school that was very difficult and there were a lot of gangs and they were often in and out of prison. And I learned actually not to be afraid of many of these young men who were misguided and, and uh, et etc. Um, But I think, you know, you you have to have a second thought about meeting people. And it's very easily shown, you know, we all, one of the problems about working with um, people who are academics in particular is they all think they're very rational. Well, one of the things I love to do is I have lots of exercises that would show people within 20 seconds how they respond is so irrational or comes from feelings they'd forgotten they had from long ago right, and so right. yeah out.
0: that was one of the striking things about the, the book is that we're, uh, that you learn that we're a lot less rational than we really give ourselves credit f- to, for.
1: And anybody that is different, whether they're by gender, whether by race, whether by inclination, every we are born to take account of our context and who's in it and any pro- trouble that might be and, and to be careful. And people are included in that. Now, we learn, as I say, within, you know, I'm just looking out my window here um, at a few people walking by. I'm in a very well-run country, despite the the history of Ireland. Very few people were killed in Ireland, except for those who are directly involved Mm -hmm. and and those who are their victims. You know, it's a country I don't have to worry. People come and people go. It's nice to see it. The sun is shining. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't have to have my amygdala on the on alert right by and large i can just peacefully think isn't it nice to see so many different people of so many different colors so many different kinds of people but you know we're lucky we are it is a luxury to be able to think that and therefore i think we have to recognize that um at at times of times particularly of danger we will go back to old stereotypes we will go back to things that we learned as a kid that we'd forgotten we knew Uh, I I joke because, um, you know, within, as I say, within about 20 seconds, I have some exercises I can do with people. It's something you do very fast. And it brings Mm -hmm. out all the old, old um, stereotypes. They didn't had thought they had forgotten. Right. They're there. And therefore, the, you know, we had to do in in employment here in Northern Ireland, for instance, because what was happening was the people we were um, interviewing, we always chose the people we felt more comfortable with. And that was Mm -hmm. the people from our own community. You have to remember in Northern Ireland, people have about 32 different ways of telling whether you're a Protestant or Catholic within a few minutes. Right. If we were interviewing people, we always chose people who um, gave us that first feeling of security, first feeling of familiarity, first Mm -hmm. feeling of trust. And we actually had to learn ourselves how to interview people so that those weren't the ones that hooked us and those weren't the ones that we automatically employed. Because, of course, we were turning into a society that was just employing those that we felt more comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And I think recognizing these things, it's not, I think rec- we're better for recognizing these things than not recognizing them. You know, I honestly think we're better for recognizing that we often are sexist and racist, et cetera, than not recognizing it. Absolutely. Then make sure that you can sort of make sure that the old ways of thinking are things that you, you know, came by because of particular contexts that you were in. Uh, you know for instance it's very difficult for people to move beyond these stereotypes when they've been in a conflicted situation for many decades and this is true all over the world that often they will fall back into those stereotypes when they're under pressure and i think um uh, it it taught me that um we don't know we know so little about ourselves now as a woman i would know for instance that hormones had do have a huge effect on my emotions and as Mm -hmm. a man you would know that hormones also have an effect on you. I mean, the whole question of testosterone and what, uh, what, how it enables men to um, bind together and form militia groups is, is pretty well known. You could, yes. you, know, you could do hormonal tests there easily. So why just say these things don't count? They do count. And learning to take them into account um, is something that I think it will make us do our work better. But there was an experiment that I came across when I was in my INCOR years in, in, in the UN organization and it was I came across somebody who had been by this stage we were beginning to be able to do fMRIs Uh, we were beginning to get the new processes and methods so which we could actually check people's brains and there was one incident where somebody who had deeply felt about something I can't even remember what it was about religion or something social or whatever and Mm -hmm. they wired up this person and what do you think happened did they did they change their minds no way Did they begin to think differently? Actually, no way. Basically, they began to freeze because once they saw that these ideas were threatening to what they believed, they closed their minds. They literally, Mm. you could see it on the fMRI, they closed their minds. And why did they do do that? Well, uh, as you can see in my book, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, once you have found a group that you belong to, once you have found a place in society to be, it can be very difficult because... And I say to people, don't ask why people don't change their minds. Ask what they will lose by changing their minds. Mm-hmm. And you discover yes. they will lose friends, societies, neighbors. I mean, we often, one of the things about bringing so many international students to, to Brandeis was that we were all there. And I, in particular, was very aware that their minds would be changed about quite a lot of things before they went back. Right. And there was going to be a price for this. Because for instance, one of the ones that you mean a price
0: that they would have to pay when they came home, when they went a home. Price,
1: yes. A price that they would have to pay when they went home. And one of the examples, for instance, was for a lot of our African students and people who are gay were people who were seen as being outside of the pale. Mm-hmm. You know, you come to Brandeis and you have a class with people who are gay, who are LGBT, who are trans, and inevitably you become friends with them and you go to parties with them and then by the end of the year, you realize you see them so totally differently than when you left home. Right. And also you see, you know, if you've been involved as a part of one ethnic group as opposed to another, you meet people who are from so many different groups and you begin to see that, you know, belonging is a human factor that drives us to protect where we are and what we think. Mm-hmm. because the price And of who we belong to, I guess. And who we belong to. And, and it's it's actually quite a hard price that people have to pay I talk here in Northern Ireland, we have an Irish term called a strong chair. It's, it's, it's named a stranger. And we became aware that a lot of the people who became involved in the community relations work that we were involved in um, were, were finding it pretty hard because they found themselves becoming more and more a stranger to their own community. Mm. Therefore, where did they get the support? And of course, you know, we had some way there were some ways in which they could support each other. But by and large, you know, society was divided into different groups. And I think you, you can see this happen so quickly in so many places. I mean, if you look at what happened in, in, in the Balkans, where neighbors who had lived with each other, married with each other, gone to school with each other, within just a few months, found themselves on different sides because they had to pick sides. They couldn't be safe. They didn't know who they could talk to. You right. know, you really right. locate yourself within a group. And you can see then uh, you can see it in the States, for instance, you can see where people begin then to consolidate the way they believe. So they always go first to Fox News or they always go to MSNBC or they always read in Israel. They'll always read the Jerusalem Post or they will read Haaretz, which is more liberal. And you begin just to sort of take into account uh, what you're hearing from the media that you've chosen and also the friends that you've chosen to be your friends. And, and, you know, I think it's very hard for us to, to, to knock that on the head because uh, the, the loneliness of not being, not belonging, is, it's very painful for many people, particularly in, in situations of conflict. Yeah. Um, it's just so hard for people not to locate themselves somewhere with a group.
0: As scientists get better at using these tools, they not only help them see how a person's brain reacts to conflict, they can even help us predict how someone might react.
1: One of the things that um, I worry about is that we we often don't understand the need for conservatism as well. Mm. I mean, when you find groups don't move for all the reasons I mentioned, but actually not moving has been what's made them successful so far. So one of the things I often note is that um, we take, we actually do honour the conservatism of not moving before we move on to why people need to move. Mm -hmm. And I think that... um, You know, in in the United States, this is as relevant in the United States as as it is anywhere else. I mean, I do think that uh, it's been it is a particularly difficult time, not least helped by Facebook and particularly what we're discovering about it. But the Mm. other thing is, um, you know, I have a husband who's who cycles and he has cycled across the States and through it and around it. Yes,
0: I know. (laughs) He's amazing. And he
1: always comes back saying he always came back saying, you know, we have to remember that these people are decent pretty well everywhere, whether they're red states or blue states. They will look after each other. They will take care of you. If you have a breakdown, they will make sure that they get you home, they'll give you a bed, et cetera, et cetera. And we often forget that uh, because we see the sort of the the, the differences that there are between us. But understanding Mm -hmm. how people are as they are and what they're afraid of. And why they're afraid to start dismantling processes, whether it's processes where, you know, they were the only people in the United States, they think, before immigrants came, forgetting about, of course, the Native American Indians. But, you know, they saw a place where they used to be and used to feel a certain way. And they see it now. Everything's changed and they can't be sure that not what's in front of their children, et cetera. And I Mm -hmm. think understanding that that is not something that you can move from that easily as well. No. Uh, I think it's something we sometimes forget as liberals we sometimes see it it it's all they have to do is become enlightened accept people who are different from them accept gay marriage accept you know and uh, abortion and whatever and really we have to get beside people to understand these are things that actually really really matter and I think without that getting beside people and understanding why these, these are these uh, conservative ideas are important it can be very hard to move on because we forget to do the bit about noticing what people are going to lose if they actually uh, do change. Right. And that's the thing we need to concentrate on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so important, but it seems so daunting. I mean, you know, from our perspective here in the U S where ideology is so uh, powerful that people are unwilling to even get vaccinated because it's against there some sort of ideology. I mean, policemen are uh, refusing to be vaccinated, and yet the um, COVID is the um, the number one killer of policemen. I mean,
1: where what do you do with that? I think many of them are seeing it as, as a political choice, rather mm-hmm. than some obviously see it as a, as a, a medical choice. One of the reasons. And I've been chastised for saying this, but one of the reasons I think that the Democrats lost to Trump mm-hmm. was actually exemplified by the remark that Hillary Clinton made about people who voted voting for Trump being a basket of deplorables. Yes. When I heard that, I knew the figures were so... I knew we were going to lose, the Democrats were going to lose. Mm. And Because Trump... I mean, one of the things people... One of the, and I, as you probably may have forgotten, but I have written a book on why people voted for Trump. And one <laughs> of the things that was very clear to me was actually Trump is the sort of person they'd like to have with them in a bar.
0: Mm-hmm. They
1: actually don't feel looked down upon. They don't feel he's snobbish. They don't feel that things that they may not understand the need for. And um, they, they just don't feel the same way they feel in terms of many of pe- many people who are seen as 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 Democrats, etc., and I think that um, I'm not so sure. I have a great faith, actually, in, in the United States. I mean, the United States goes through some tough times and there are very divided times as well. Just think back in in, in this in the history of the United States. That's why I love the United States, in mm-hmm. a sense, because it is such an amalgam of the great and the best. And then you find people who are just getting completely lost and completely mm-hmm. out of kin, kin with, with values, et cetera. So my sense is that a lot of this, um, unfortunately, is not being helped by the conversations that are take, that that are um, enticing many of the the Democrats to be involved in. I mean, I do think that there has been a, a bit about the um, what, what the value judgments that are being made, and particularly value judgments that are being made in terms of relatively uh, small interests and small groups, etc. How mm-hmm. to be? I, I think they call it wokeness or whatever. Um, <laughs> right. It's 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 some of, that's what's engaging people. I mean, one of the the problems that I personally have had is that as someone who has been deeply involved in trying to shift an unequal society, and that was not easy. Um, you know, for instance, you know, looking at why Catholics were being left out of um, mm-hmm. public service, and we looked at it, and we discovered it's because obviously it wasn't that one group was more intelligent than the other, but what no, it of did come not. Out was that there were different systems of education. And these systems in the Protestant uh, schools are all divided. So the systems in the Protestant schools were very much focused on systemic um, evaluation, et cetera. So multi-choice questions were the way that they, um, uh, in a sense, evaluated people. And on the other hand, in the Catholic communities is much more uh, religion and philosophy. And Mm -hmm. their their capacity seemed to be around writing uh, about broader issues mm-hmm. and when we actually combined those two uh, processes in fact lo and behold catholics were getting in with the same sort of uh, credit and, and, and numbers as far pro- as they should in terms of the community so but we had to do so much deep work in terms of why people were not thriving and not succeeding and i think that um one of the things that i worry about is that the concentration on the culture of openness means we're not doing that work well enough I mean, there are reasons why people are not thriving in our systems and there are reasons they're not they're they're discoverable. And I sense that, you know, just as I can remember the the work that we went through to discover why it was that children of a certain community weren't doing as well as children of others. And you realize that, in fact, you know, it is a is, is a question of really deep mining the systems that happen in terms of where our children start and where they go to, et cetera. I mean, right. one of the other things that is different that we luckily enough didn't have to contend with was and um, Catholics began to um, assess themselves um, when free education came on board. And free education meant that Catholics got exactly the same uh, education as everybody else,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: was a wonderful um, and engaging uh, and an uplifting process in the States. Unfortunately, I see education as just being about where you're born.
0: Exactly. And it's it's your zip
1: code. Often, very hard often to get out of that zip code. So yes. I think there are so many things that that's but my hope is that, um, you know, that the work is being done in terms of the differences and what can be done to make sure that the, those are eroded as quickly as possible. One of the reassuring things is it did take us time I and mean, we basically started um, Equal Opportunities work um, in 1970 when after the riots had just been so appalling. And the work went on. I think within twenty to twenty-five years, and um, by and large, much most of the work has been done. There's a few leftovers in terms of equality, and mainly in terms of very long-term unemployed who just didn't have the capacity to go back and get the training that they needed, et cetera. But you know, it can be done. It's just a question of whether politically we're willing to do it. Yeah. And We had a good. We had a good few decades where. You know, we had great people, we had the best of academics, we had the best of policymakers really focusing on it and enabling it to ensure that our Catholics did come through. In fact, now we even have Protestants complaining that they're not doing as well as the Catholics, but there is a newfound freedom that comes when you feel you've been left behind and, and you discover open doors.
0: Mary took a deep dive into contemporary brain research in order to learn how we can apply this knowledge to making peace building more effective. Her book is a remarkable synthesis of her experience working on conflicts around the world and all that she learned about how our brains react to conflict. With a better understanding of why people think the way they do, we can perhaps find better, faster ways to reach common ground and reduce violent behavior.
1: I suppose one of the things that sometimes people say to me, what having come out of this process of you know, a fairly intense few years looking at the book and all of the research, which is, by the way, changing by the months and the years. I actually came out feeling very compassionate for our nature in some ways, Hmm. because nature has bestowed upon us a sort of a heritage that actually means that we are always on the alert. We are always fearful. um, And many of our societies are such that we can't let that go yet. It's interesting to note that it's in more liberal communities that human rights are actually taken more seriously. And I think that's because, in a way, we have more order around us. You know, if somebody actually does, you know, gets into our house and robs our goods, there is some way of actually that being taken care of through a sort of a structure of policing, etc. But if we don't have governance that is keeping us safe, all we, all we have is our instincts. And often those instincts are around our kin and around the way in which we belong and who we belong to. I mean, I find it fascinating watching um. Uh, if you've watched ceasefires, um, people will often come on board and, you know, people are very uh, enthusiastic and they say, yes, such and such won't happen. But then you watch how quickly they go back to the old ways. I mean, even here in Ireland, you sometimes find people when they're under stress, they go back to the ways that they have been born to think or to feel. That actually can be so problematic in terms of our, our work again, because, um, you know, we're so near to the edge in terms of the things that have mattered to us, the people that have mattered to us. And really that is almost our first, um, the first place that we belong to. And it'd be quite hard to move on. We, we, Kahneman has done some work on this where he talked about, you know, system one and system two. And it very much reflects what I've been writing about in the book. System one is, is what we feel and feelings happen. They always happen before we think, always. We can see this. One of the things that, oh, I have so learned is, our first instinct when we come across anger in, in, in conflicts is probably to first check out what fear is behind it. Mm-hmm. And this came home to me um, very movingly. once. One of the first pieces of work that I did in Northern Ireland where I had a group, they were sort of Protestant clergymen and another was a group of middle-class Catholics. And people weren't used to being brought together, so there was a bit of nervousness about it. And I said, okay, well, look, let's introduce ourselves. And one of the Protestant Clergyman stood up and he said, Mary, he said, I don't see the point of this. He said, We know what that lot wants the SDLP, the other side, the nationalists. Mm-hmm. They want us to go back to where we came from 300 years ago in Scotland. And what they don't realize is we have nowhere to go. And he burst into tears. Mm. Now, you can imagine the effect that that had on the Catholics because they had always seen the Protestants as having all the power, the resources, right. and the, the the jobs, et etc. It had literally not struck them that these were people who were afraid that because of the fact that they would come as planters three hundred years ago, they had nowhere to go back to the The nationalists in Ireland could always go down, they saw to the south of Ireland, right the Protestants in the north had nowhere to go, mm. and those sort of so so checking out the fears. But also there's, uh, there's uh, quite a, bit, a lot, of, I've done a lot of mediations and, uh, you know, one of the things you learn is often what happens in the corridors is more important than what happens in the so-called mediation rooms. Right. Because it's fair, people, when they get into the mediation rooms, they often just tell their story, tell each side and one follows the other. And, you know, often you have to go through a day or two of making sure that everybody's had a chance to tell their side. And they're... Right anger and their whatever, before you can actually move on. But there are ways, and the literature is, has got a lot of different, some maybe someday I'll put it together, but I've talked and been in a lot of mediations where uh, people will tell me, for instance, the South African mediations, um, The you, you would see that it was a particular point uh, where a couple of the Rolf Meyer and some of the ANC people uh, got together outside of the normal process and actually began to talk about their children somebody had had somebody who was sick, et cetera, et cetera. Similarly so <laughs> in Northern Ireland, the prime minister of Ireland actually left the talks in Northern Ireland. They were so important and went back because his mother had died. Now dying is a really, really big thing in Northern Ireland. You know, we pay a lot of attention to it, but he actually went down and came back the same day because he was so worried the talks would fail and the, the Protestants, thought, my God, he's actually given up a part of what is very precious to come back. Right, to these... right. And I think this is often not realized. I remember doing a, a particular um, process in Istanbul. Istanbul is where you do a lot of the, the Middle Eastern processes. And I had come upon, I had sort of come in and somebody had given me what they had thought was a program. And the whole program was full of things, to, things of, ex, of um, uh, talking and thinking and ideas and whatever. And I immediately said, but this is no good. They have no chance to actually uh, sit and, 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 and sort of get to know each other in, in a way that is not too too um, directed. So anyway, that night, we uh, I, we brought people down to the hammam, down to the baths, so they could mm-hmm. go to the baths. There's nothing like being almost naked uh, to actually break down barriers. <laughs> yes, people- I'll bet. <laughs> And I can remember one evening in, there was, um, we were sitting in Istanbul, the restaurants are the small streets, so the restaurants are fairly elongated. And of course, everybody had sat down on their own side. So there was all one side was the Israelis and one side the Palestinians were the other. But there was food and there was some drink for those who take it. But I, we were so blessed because um, a, a guy came along with a thing that uh, you spin. It, it, it's, a, it's an illumination thing that you spin for children. They love it. You know, it goes round and round. And immediately somebody said, oh, I want to get one of those for my grandchildren. And the other started. And then, of course, you had all the photos out of the grandchildren. That makes so much of a difference. Because right. one of the things is we're not lacking solutions. The solutions are not the problem. It's getting people to go to the solutions together.
0: That concludes our interview. We thank Mary for her insights and please do read her excellent book, Our Brains at War. The Making Peace Visible podcast is a production of the War Stories Peace Stories project, working to reimagine the way the news media covers peace and conflict and to ensure that crucial stories about peace building are written and shared globally. To learn more, or to join us in this work, please visit warstoriespeacestories.org.